Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta. <coughs> Everywhere we look today, the culture is twisting truth into lies and lies into truth. The whole concept of an objective order of truth and morality not only seems to be thrown out the window, it seems to be purported as if it doesn't exist to begin with. And how do we get to this bizarre point in history? There are numerous ways in which we can track the evolution of ideas and the evolution of philosophies. But most importantly, how can we fight this tide of insanity and win reality back? We're going to be talking to Gary Machuta about this. Gary is the author of several books. He's a friend. And he's most recently authored The Gospel Truth, How We Can Know What Christ Taught, and the, and also Revolt Against Reality, Fighting the Enemies of Sanity and Truth. He's an instructor of apologetics for Homeschool Connections and the host of Hands-On Apologetics for, Hands-On apologetics for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Gary, how are you doing? Great, Marcus. Thanks for having me on. Oh, no. The pleasure's all mine. It's good to talk to you again. So... Uh, Gary, I wanted to ask you, first of all, so we're talking about Gary's book, Revolt Against Reality, Fighting the Foes of Sanity and Truth, From the Serpent to the State. And I want to provide our listeners with a little bit of context, Gary, before I move forward. In 2005, on the 18th of April, Pope Benedict Sixteenth gave this address that I, I, I often tell people it doomed him to become Pope. Uh, it was the great dictatorship <laughs> of rel- relativism address. And the very next day he was elected Pope Benedict XVI. Well, he took on the name Pope Benedict XVI. And uh, I, I, uh, popular piety has it that he begged God not to do this to him or something to that effect. But the, the point of it is that this was a Pope who was co- constantly concerned with how objective truth was slowly but surely losing its footing in the public sphere. So uh, in that same... No, yeah, in that same year, in September, or was it the year after that, uh, he, uh, 2006, he, gave, he delivered what was perhaps one of the most famous speeches pertaining to the reality of truth in the a- academic sphere. It's called the Regensburg Address. And I see both of these addresses as working hand in hand. Your book, Revolt Against Reality, traces the kind of devolution of truth all the way back to these first few stages of dehellenization, but you go all the way back to the garden, which I actually greatly appreciate. <laughs> it was a brilliant read. So I want to ask you, just based on what we just talked about, uh, what inspired you to want to pen this evolution of bad ideas? Yeah, well, it's it's been in progress for a long, long time. Most of my books are. It's just it accumulates until I get to the point where I feel if I don't write it down, I'm going to forget it all. And uh, and especially, you know, this was written uh, two or three years ago originally. And uh, that's when it was clear that the uh, foundations of civilization was in the process of crumbling, you mm-hmm. know. And so I thought, in all, amidst all this chaos, we need to do a deep dive into its causes. So what I started doing was trying to reverse engineer, you know, to find all the things that are going haywire today that's chaotic and try to find, you know, what's the immediate cause of that and what's the cause of that. And working backwards through history, um, I, I, I wanted to connect the dots <clears throat> so we can see how this train went off the rails because, yes, things are crazy today, but it isn't like it happened yesterday or a decade or even a century ago. Um, there, there's been a major revolt going on, really ever since the incarnation, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is like that is the uh, uh, D-Day, 
of sanity where <laughs> God becomes man and, and unites all these really powerful concepts together. Yeah. And then, uh, like you said, I, I actually even go before that. But I wanted to show the trajectory, you know, of how man fell uh, by believing the lie of the serpent, how God restores man through the incarnation. And then the rest is humanity's attempt to find unity apart from the the incarnation. Right. And we've tried everything, and it's gone wrong. And it seems like every time we try something outside of uh, God, uh, it just causes further problems that need to be corrected, and those cause further problems, and so on and so forth. So reading the entire book, the the sense that you give the readers, it, you, you do a good job of painting how uh, these bad philosophies impacted human dignity, impacted marriage and the family, and then society, the community at large, and then governments as well, and, and, and the church. So uh, th- there are many different ramifications to bad ideas, just as much as good ideas have kind of all permeating capacities. But one of the things that you you portray very clearly is that none of these bad ideas existed in a vacuum. Th- like you mentioned, this trajectory. And mm-hmm. there's been a kind of building upon the other. So in as much as some of the proponents of these bad ideas came out as if they were being unique, they really weren't. They were standing upon the shoulders of those who came before them. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, even like the earliest Christological heresies, it was just redressing paganism, mm-hmm. you know, Arianism. There's a reason why a lot of people became Christian under when Arius was the the hot topic of the day. It's because pagans were okay with demigods, and that's precisely what Arian said the sun was, essentially right. a demigod. And same thing true with uh, denying Christ humanity, the other side of the incarnation. Um, that that was Gnosticism that actually preexisted Christianity. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, you're right. A lot of these thoughts have been around and uh, been around since the garden, really, because yeah. it's just, uh, you know, the devil knows when something works, he sticks with it. And why why reinvent something new when something's working as it is? Right. And in in a sense, no matter how long we live, I mean, not in a sense, this is the objective reality. No matter how long we live, we don't, none of us live long enough to see the ebbs and flows of society really repeat themselves. Yeah. And because of that, we wind up recreating the wheel of bad ideas over and over again. And, and you really demonstrate that. So you begin with the first revolt. You, you do this in you know, page, 26 of, uh, page 24 of your book onwards. Uh, you start talking about the first revolt, which was the garden, literally the genesis of bad ideas, pun intended. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it's funny because, you know, originally I wasn't going to go that far back. I was going to maybe go. Uh, first, I thought I'd go to the Protestant uh, revolt. Then I thought, no, there was Islamic predecessors, and I kept going back. Then it's like the incarnation. Well, I went this far. I might as well go all the way to the beginning. <laughs> and as I was doing this work, I realized that, you know, a lot of the things in the serpent's lie to Adam and Eve are there, you know, in seed form. The same kind of errors that pop up later on mm-hmm. was there in when he tried to seduce Eve into partaking of the fruit. For example, uh, you know, uh, this idea that God's holding out on you, that there's the secret knowledge that you don't know about that I'm going to give you that, uh, you know, actually what God's doing is he doesn't want you to be like him and knowing good and evil. And I think in that context, it really means determining good and evil as if God determines good and evil and you could determine your good and evil if you partake of the fruit. That's right. The great lie was not so much the capacity to discern good and evil, but to arbitrate good and evil. Yeah. So yeah. 
Romano Cesario, in the introduction of his book, Introduction to Moral Theology, and literally in the introduction chapter, he talks about how human freedom actually finds full flourishing when it is in conformity with God's law. So that that fundamental lie of the serpent, you know, God is holding out on you, and therefore his law, everything that he's imposed on you, is keeping you from being free. And yet the reality couldn't be further from that from that lie. So walk us through that, because there really seems to be a kind of dichotomy or oxymoron. I'm only free when I'm adhering to laws. Yeah, yeah, it does. That's because the laws reflect the, the fabric in which God has created. And just like, for example, uh, uh, let's say a train is f- most free when it's on the tracks. Right. Because that's how the train is designed. But it's l- less free when it, it can go off the tracks, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the same thing's tr- true with, uh, you know, cars. They run perfectly as long as you keep them according to how they're built. Mm-hmm. And if you put sugar in your gas tank, for example, or Kool-Aid <laughs> or whatever, it's not going to work, right? And you might have the freedom to do that, but that'll be the last free act you'll have in that car because you're going to have to rebuild the engine. <laughs> well, provided something worse doesn't happen to you in the process. So yes, we, exactly. we urge you, listeners, don't experiment with that. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, you you are free with laws as long as those laws map on the nature. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's exactly what the serpent tried not to do. He tried to give him another law that doesn't map on the nature. That isn't how God works. That isn't what God's plan was. And uh, by taking that route, in a sense, they became enslaved to this false narrative, this false reality. And what's hilarious about all this is, very frankly... <laughs> this notion of natural law has permeated all of anthropology. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's not like this is something that the Christians invented post factum to try to argue that there's a kind of nomos that governs the entirety of human existence just simply because the Christians have received of a divine re- revealed law. This system, this framework of societal functioning has been so ingrained in the human psyche that there have been various iterations of this kind of similar framework throughout the history of anthropology. So that means even in our quest to be free from God, we can't actually be free from from the system, that the framework, the le- legal, so to speak, framework of how to operate by ourselves and with each other in society. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and that's why, you know, pagans anticipate a lot of the, the things that were already taught in Judaism and especially in Christianity. Because uh, with the light of Christ, you know, he illuminates how things truly are because he's God himself. And he also unleashes all sorts of really interesting intellectual revolutions that just dynamize ancient pagan society and brings it into what was Western civilization. Mm-hmm. You know, the the uh, practical uh, practical philosopher, the philosopher of practical reason, Pierre Manent, uh, it, it, his book was in French, but I, I know they translated it into English. He talks about how there, there has to be a kind of teleological grammar or, or a kind of a, a grammar of ends. But 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 he doesn't talk about it in terms of uh, the ends justify the means. It's more that, that there's a kind of ultimate reality, even within the framework of reason outside of theology and metaphysics, mm-hmm. uh, that governs our moral acts. That means that we ought to be functioning for a good that's higher than just the immediate gain of the act. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, and it's and again, that's where knowing and doing meet. 
right? Mm-hmm. Because yep. you have to you have to know what is the greatest good, and then you can reason how can we obtain the greatest good personally and then as a society. And it's all one part of a whole. You yep. can't you can't skip on one part or get something wrong without the whole thing not working very well or eventually falling apart. Right. So when we when we talk about sanity, for example, looking back at the history of the development of laws ever since the fall, you, you get things like the lax talionis, the an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, the Hammurabic Code. Okay, we're going to have to continue this conversation on the other side, Gary. It, 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 you, you and I always go off on this, and, and we really enjoy it. I've been talking to Gary Machuta, author of several books, most recently, and the one we're talking about today, Revolt Against Reality, Fighting the Enemies of Sanity and Truth. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta on this lovely Tuesday afternoon. Talking to Gary Machuta, author of Revolt Against Reality, and we're talking about the concept of sanity. So, Gary, I want to step back to a big picture question, which is very simply, what is sanity in terms of etymology? How, do, how ought we understand sanity? Because, frankly, today, the reasonable man is considered the insane one. Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, I like Frank Sheed's definition. You know, Frank Sheed, uh, the great apologist mm-hmm. from the last century, he said, you know, the definition of sanity is to, or let's do insanity. The definition of insanity is the degree to which what one knows does not correspond to what is. Mm-hmm. Okay, and the typical explanation would be if I said I was a good person. Okay, that's probably not that crazy. If I say I'm a great person, I might have an ego problem. But if I say I am the son of God and the, the, the norm that sets all norms in, in the world, you would think I'm a lunatic, mm-hmm. right? Because what I believe, if I truly believe that, does not correspond to how things truly are. Right. So, you know, I think it's that equation, you know, between what is and what we, what we know and what is, that's sanity. And, right. uh, and like you said, a lot of people today that are sane, you know, in any sane world, they're going to look kind of crazy. Right. And Sheed's getting this from, he's a practical Thomist, so, or at least an applied Thomist. He's getting this from mm-hmm. Prima Pass question 16, articles 1 and 2, that truth is the correspondence between thought and thing. And uh, we, we seem to have lost that, that yeah. the, the, the notion of truth has to correspond with that which is not just in terms of material reality, but in re- with reality as a grand scheme. And, and we've lost sight of that. So comment on that a little bit. Yeah. Well, in my book, I kind of trace the trajectory of how that happened. And mm-hmm. it, it really starts off with a false understanding of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there is a, a group within Islam that believe that Allah, uh, Allah can do whatever he wants. That's his, right. His will was not constrained by... His uh, his goodness or his wisdom, so he can call a bad thing good, a good thing bad, mm-hmm. and basically, if that's true, then there's no way to know what's good and bad, right? Where even at least the Greeks could tell just by nature, they could say what's good or bad or better or best, um, and that that divorce between you know knowing and doing uh, within God 
uh, has a direct impact on human thought. That gets imported into the West. Mm-hmm. And that's where uh, there's a couple of things. One is a reaction or one is an adoption of this. This is called the Latin Aberyst. And they believe that, yeah. uh, well, you could basically divide reality into two schemes. That's you could right. have the religious reality. And the faith. And the, and, yeah. Yeah, the truth and, reality. Exactly. So it's like there's a double truth. Right. They're both true, even though they might even contradict each other. Right. So before um, we, we yeah. jumped into, jump into the Latin average, because I really want to talk about that in terms of laying the groundwork for the Protestant revolt. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I do want to backtrack into what you were talking about in terms of Islam. Uh, mm-hmm. So so you commented very briefly, but Sunniism has, in fact, embraced the Mutazilite uh, way of thinking, you know, this, no, sorry, the Asherite way of thinking, this kind of yes. um, absolutist, voluntaristic mentality of Allah. Allah is beyond any category, including the category of reason. And therefore, if Allah changes his mind right now, he is pure will, and therefore he can do what he wills. Yes. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and and just think that unravels the whole fabric of reality, in a mm-hmm. sense, because you can't do science because right. everything is the will of Allah. The only reason two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen makes water is because of Allah's will. It could make a chicken, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. It, it, and so it's, reality kind of becomes almost dreamlike if you really take that point of view seriously. Right. And there are a lot of ma- there are massive ramifications, including the anthropological ramification. Mm-hmm. which is that if Allah is pure will, then there really is no concept of the imago imputed upon the human person. And right. because of that, the, the, instead of having this covenantal father-son framework that we've been gifted by means of divine revelation, especially in Christ, we, what Islam gives us is the master-slave religion. or some, I mean, definitionally, it, it could go lower than an understanding of slave. But Allah is master, and, and the, the Abdul Allah is the slave, right? That the, mm-hmm. And, and the, in this voluntaristic notion, soteriology goes out the window. Allah could change his mind about his slaves tomorrow, and there's not a thing that can be done about it. That's right. Yeah, he could, uh, he could uh, say murder is bad, and then the next day say the very same thing, murder is good. And what matters is really his will and but how do you know his will you right. can't know it from nature because his will is arbitrary mm-hmm. the only way to know is by divine revelation alone right uh, but meanwhile the the rationalist school the the mutazilite school they mm-hmm. were in fact the only ones to utilize the term wajib right the 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 onus the obligatory onus of the will of god yeah yeah or that uh yeah the, that allah can be compelled Mm-hmm. And which, of course, is problematic because if something compels Allah, then there must be something higher than Allah to compel him. That's and right. Allah wouldn't be Allah; it would be God. Right. Yeah. Which, which again, you know, it, it's it's kind of a poor metaphysics of the divine because you take a look at say the Regensburg Address, and Benedict states this very clearly: to act in a manner that's contrary to reason is contrary to the nature of God. God's yeah. nature is by itself reasonable. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, which is part and parcel of Christian revelation. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, so the ramifications of what you believe about God affects the ramifications of what you believe about what, the value and dignity of human life, which affects how we ought to be governed. They're all one package. And it's not by accident that you know certain belief systems, whether it be atheism or Islam or Christianity, mm-hmm. takes a certain form, you know, a certain types of government are run under each form because they all have implications about 
what we are as human beings and how we ought to be governed. Right. So then we we can move forward because you know Everos being an inheritor of the Islamic system, although uh, in an attempt of reason, we we get the Latin Everists. So tell us about them and some of the big names affiliated with this movement. Yeah, uh, boy, <laughs> uh, all the big names that no one would ever hear. But uh, Saint Thomas Aquinas went after them uh, mm-hmm. because he realized how deadly it was. Yep. Because what they wanted to do is they wanted to hold on to Aristotle. And they wanted to be Christians, but the problem is Aristotle's a pagan, and uh, Christianity is Christianity. And that's why they they made this, like, dual-sync idea of, well, they're both true. You know, mm-hmm. I can be a avarist and say there's a, there's more than one God or something to that effect, and as a Christian, say there's only one. And, you know, it's just a truth for you, truth for me type deal. Um, and Aquinas said, no, because when you do that, you reduce the faith down to an opinion. It just right. becomes one opinion amongst, amongst others. others. Right. And boy, that's alive today. I mean, just yeah, look in yeah. politics, how you can have somebody who say, I'm a faithful Catholic and yet publicly go against everything the church teaches in terms of morality. Right. And this isn't unique to what's happening here in the U.S. This is a rhetoric that's spanning the globe right now. This, yeah. no- this notion of uh, knowledge of a truth imposes upon the knower the onus of moral action seems to be completely lost. Meanwhile, that that's a fundamental framework of the operation of the human person. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, ultimately, like I say in my book, I'll give you a, this, so this is a spoiler alert for those who haven't read the book, reality wins because it's really the only <laughs> game in town, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, what else can you go then reality the rest is just dreams and you know i we are starting to see today and i think if i could predict the future if we continue on this path reality is going to push back in some pretty frightful ways because Mm -hmm. you could pretend reality doesn't exist or it's different but ultimately push comes to shove it's the only game in town right Oftentimes, people don't realize that the laws of the covenant, the laws of theology, find themselves to, uh, f- founded upon the laws of nature. Grace builds upon nature. Yes. So to violate the laws of the covenant in theology is to violate the laws of nature. It, and I often told my students this. It's like trying to run headlong into a brick wall. You don't really break the laws of nature. The laws of nature break you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'll have to steal that. That's a great analogy. <laughs> Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, another way to put it is, you know, uh, I, I've heard uh, someone say, you could put your hand on a hot stove and burn your hand. Now, I'll forgive you, God will forgive you, but you can't unburn your hand. You know, right. it's not in the nature of nature to forgive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we live in a way that's contrary to how things truly are, we we live at our own peril because... Uh, they're not like that, and ultimately, like you said, the the wall hits you. Right. So Marsilius of Padua builds upon the, the avarice framework, this kind of dual notion framework, writes this document called Defenso Pacis, and, well, it kind of opens up a can of worms. So tell us yeah. about that. Yeah, so uh, basically, uh, boy, there's a whole really cool backstory, but I'll spare everybody that. Um, that uh, basically he was kind of making a futuristic civilization. Mm-hmm. And basically he said, well, we can be- build civilization just purely on rational grounds and then basically use religion to 
affirm what we've already had on rational grounds. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's kind of a foreshadowing of the secular state. Right. You know, it's like, yeah, religion's nice as a kind of confer- confirmation of what we know by reason, but it really doesn't have any driving effect, and you tailor it to whatever you think is rational. Right. And then you yeah. get William of Ockham. Uh, you yeah. know, you're right to point out that most people just call him Ockham. He's most yeah. known for his principle of the razor, which is founded upon nominalism. This kind of reductionist view of the truth, the, the simplest is what it is. Mm-hmm. There's no denying it. Ockham was a forerunner, and so was Marsilius, but Ockham was kind of the primary forerunner to Luther's framework. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, Occam, boy, he's really coming back today, nominalism. Yeah, yeah. uh, Because he denied that there are universals, that things are connected together, so to speak. And rather, he said, it's all radical individuals. What really matters is the name you put on things. Mm -hmm. It's not the nature of the thing, but the name. Right, because you can't know nature. Exactly. And boy, today, you know, it's the same thing where, you know, are you male? Are you female? Well, it's really the name that you put on it Mm -hmm. that determines that. It's not your nature. It's not your biology. And uh, we're swimming in this kind of nominalistic thought. Right. So is it a wonder that Luther then develops his soteriology based on that? You know, this kind of reductionistic, thank God, soteriology is by faith alone. It could have been as complex as what the Catholic Church calls it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so he starts dividing reality in a sense. You know, it's either faith or it's works. It's either God or it's man. Uh, you have all these dichotomies within Luther's thought where basically it takes nominalism and puts it into a Christian framework. Right. And we could continue on because what that does to the moral law and how it impacts Western civilization as we know it is alarming. And I'd love to continue this, Gary, but we have to call it now. We're talking to Gary Machuta, author of several books, including Revolt Against Reality, Fighting the Enemies of Sanity and Truth. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon.